Greetings again to all of God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph, and we're going to continue now with uh, Genesis chapter 6. Last time, if you remember, we were talking about the, the different creatures that men, uh, humanity did worship, and uh, angels were involved in it in the sense of possessing those creatures, and therefore that's how the reality of God in forms of human, in forms of uh, creatures uh, came about. And uh, we began to talk about a specific case where a uh, specific uh, demon possession occurred, not only of man, but it was transferred to a creature after that, and we shall read about it in the, in the book of uh, Matthew in chapter 8. And the story here is about a person that uh, was uh, demon-possessed. Uh, we can uh, begin in verse 28. When he had come, that is speaking about Christ, to the other side of the country of the uh, Gergeshins, uh, somewhere in the upper Galilee, or Gdera and other places was mentioned. This is what uh, we read, that when he arrived to the, uh, that point, they met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Uh, in other words, uh, actually, there were here two people, two demon-possessed men, not only one, I thought it was only one. Uh, uh, gives you an idea that uh, you have to read something very carefully, and uh, otherwise you take it for granted that you, you think you know what it's talking about. So it's two people that were possessed by demons, and those demons were extremely fierce, that no one could pass that way. And there was another example of another person who lived in uh, the cemetery, who was also possessed by demons, and I uh, was mixing the two together. Anyway, uh, in this case, and suddenly they cried out, that is, the two demons. In essence, in essence, the demons are the ones speaking through the two men. It wasn't, yes, it was a human being or two of them, but the voice that came out of them and the, and the, the spirit being that was in them was a demon. It was not them. In other words, their spirit was possessed by the spirit of demons, and that's basically what, they, what the demons inhabit. They inhabit the spirit, not, not uh, your leg or toe or, or, or foot or anything else. They inhabit that which they can use to think with and to act with and to speak with, and so they possess a spirit. And there is a spirit not only in human beings, but there is also a form of a spirit of much lesser uh, gradation, you might say, or quality in the beasts of the field. And that's exactly what Solomon was saying and in... And, and, uh, in his writings, who knows the spirit of man that ascends up, to, ascends up. That means when man dies, the spirit ascends up, and the spirit of the beast that goes down. Uh, that's the reason why animals can also have a measure of uh, ability to do things that you cannot explain otherwise, uh, like pets and, and dogs and, and uh, dolphins. You know, there's a lot of intelligence there, and uh, expression of emotions and feelings. You know, a dog can tell you that he's uh, happy or unhappy or angry or vicious or whatever. You can't do it unless you have a spirit in you. And so, that's, that's the reason why demons can possess both man and beast of the field and creatures. And so, it says in verse 29, And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And here they are revealing uh, something very interesting. They fully realize and understand that a time of judgment is coming for them, 
And that time of judgment will mean torment forever and ever. As you read later on in the book of Revelation, that both Satan and his demons were cast into the lake of fire, where they're going to be tormented forever and ever. As far as man, the human beings that are being thrown into a lake of fire, they are going to be consumed by it. They're going to be destroyed by it. They're going to become ashes. And they are not tormented forever and ever and ever. But when the false doctrine of heaven and hell became a reality in the minds of men, uh, down the road, uh, even later on, even uh, the Jewish community was infested with this doctrine and began to believe it that the Bible, both in the so-called the Old Testament and the New Testament, made it very, very plain that there is no such a thing. People do not go to heaven and people do not go to hell. When they die, they die. They are waiting the resurrection so they can come back to life. And when they are finally judged, God said very plainly in many places, that they're going to be ashes. You can read, for example, uh, since we're not too far from there, we can go to uh, the book of um, Malachi, Malachi, my angel or my messenger in Hebrew. And there you read very plainly what God is saying in chapter 4. And we're reading it in, in English. In Hebrew, it's a little bit different. Uh, in chapter 4, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. You know, when you put something in, in the oven, if you, if you leave it a little bit too long there, it's going to burn. It's not going to live forever and ever. It's going to burn. And when it burns, it becomes ashes. Give it long enough. And all the proud, yes, all those who do wickedly will be stubble. So it's giving you a description. They're going to be like stubble, like straw, like the weed outside. Like every summer when you have uh, the forest fires or when the fields are on fire. What happens? The stubble that is in the field gets burned. And when it's burned, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. It's ashes. And so it's making it very plain for people who do not understand plain language. And all those who wickedly will be stubble and the day which is coming shall burn them up. Not burn them forever, but burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. Of course, people don't believe him. And that will leave them neither root nor branch. You see, when they're gone, they're gone. Just like when you burn uh, your trash outside and, and uh, when you burn the, the, the trees and the plants that, that you uh, cut down, all that. When they're burned, they're just gone. There is neither root nor branch left to them. And they don't exist forever after that, crying and, and, and screaming and yelling that... Uh, uh, demonic doctrine that entered into the heart of man of heaven and hell it is hell where people are going to, be, going to be tormented forever and ever and ever and people are scaring other people to death with these doctrines today and older in order to supposedly bring them back to the sight of God and they are scaring them with demonic doctrines not with godly doctrines not with godly teachings and these people are going to have to repent of that when the time comes and so uh, we are reading here uh, in verse 2, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healings in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like the soul-fed cows, and you shall trample, that's what he's describing here, the righteous people, you are going to trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day that I do this, when I judge them, says the Lord of hosts. He made it very plain that when he's going to destroy the wicked, he's going to create 
a fire, it's called the lake of fire, and he's going to throw them into the fire, and just like you throw the refuse into the fire and it's totally consumed and becomes ashes, he said, so would the wicked be. I don't live forever and ever in hellfire, tormented. And that was a demonic doctrine that entered into the heart of man, and people began to believe it. You see, that's how Satan enters into the picture. He takes truth, which is the judgment of God, and then he's twisting it, because God uh, made it very plain. He's going to throw men into the lake of fire. And yet, because man is flesh and blood, is going to be consumed and become ashes. But when Satan is thrown into it and his demons, that being a spirit, they are going to consume, and they're going to be tormented forever and ever. And even that, it's not going to be a physical fire, because spirit being is not affected by physical fire to begin with. So you cannot say that man and Satan is being thrown into the same fire, because the fire that man is going to be thrown into is a physical one that burns him up and makes him ashes, while the fire that Satan is going to be thrown into is not of a physical nature, because he's not going to be affected by it. And so, you have to read uh, very deeply into it and begin to understand when you put all things together, and God makes it very plain in many places. You put it all together, and then you understand. And so, that's, that's what we are talking about here. So, let's go back to the men uh, who are being tormented uh, by the demons. And so, they say, the demons speaking, verse 29, uh, Why, what have, you, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us? Before the time. We know that there is a time that is coming where we're going to be tormented. Tormented forever and ever, as we're told later on, for all that they've done to humanity. And so, we read in verse 3, Now a good way off from them there was a herd of many swine feeding, that means pigs. Uh, and so the demons, now, it's making it very plain, who are the ones speaking? The demons, you know, who were uh, possessing these people, begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And now you'll get an idea how many of them they were. There were many of them. You see, the two people were possessed by many, many demons. And he said to them, Go. And so when they had come out, they came out of the men, the two men, they went into the herd of the swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. This is a demonic mind, self-destructive. And uh, now a lot of people are getting those attitudes in their mind and they become self-destructive. And they don't ponder and they don't stop, they don't think, what am I doing? You see, they're just taken over by that spirit that is a demonic spirit and they don't realize it's not that the demons always possess human beings, they can just influence you without even possessing you. And then with those thoughts in mind, you begin to function in a self-destructive manner. And you see those kind of people. You see even children at times becoming self-destructive. Because those spirits are affecting them. And the physicians of the day, modern people, uh, modern men, not believing in God, they think, well, that's just a mental problem. And they don't realize we're talking about spirit beings affecting human beings, even children. And they affect animals. In this case... That's what they did. As soon as they came out of the men, they, they entered into the herd of swine. And the swine, there were many, many of them, not only two. So, you know, there were many, many demons. And the first thing they do is they go into the, into the lake. They jump into the lake, you know, just like the statement. We don't like somebody who would say, would say to him, go jump into the lake. 
That's what we mean by that. It's a cliche that became later on. It's a sort of an old proverb that came from this instance and probably other cases. And they all perished in the water. Now, the swine perished in the water, not the demons. The demons are spirit demons. They continue on. And they went on their merry way, destroying others. But uh, that's, that's one example. And so as we go back to Genesis, we see men in that state of mind, of a self-destructive attitude, where he goes and destroys not only everything around him, but himself. And today, you see the same kind of spirit in men. Why do you think human beings, the scientists or politicians, are, are inventing all those weapons of mass destruction? You see? I mean, one bomb is not even good enough for them. They have to invent millions and millions of them in all forms and then uh, invent more weapons of destruction, uh, chemical, warfare, and, and, and everything else that they conceive of. It's a satanic spirit that enters into the minds of men and causes them to think that way. They're not thinking rationally anymore. One bullet is enough. You don't need a billion bullets, you know, to kill a man. And... That's, in essence, what was happening in the days of, uh, of Noah. People just became totally self-destruct because spirit beings were in them that were demonic beings. And just like we saw this example in specific, what happens when spirit demon, uh, beings enter into human beings or even into animals? You know, they, they produce mass destruction. And God says that I'm just sorry, I repent, I, I'm, I'm terribly uh, upset and grieved that I've even brought humanity into existence and the beasts of the field because all of them were now influenced or possessed. Some were influenced, some were possessed, but all were affected by the same demonic spirits. And so it was going to destroy all of them. And then we read in verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, in verse 7 we read, So the Lord said, I will destroy man. First man is the chief culprit. Of course, influenced by, by Satan, but he still has uh, the ability to say no. He's not willing to say no. So he allows Satan, he allows his demons to affect him. And whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast. Because all of them are now in that, under that influence. And all the creeping things and the birds of the air. For I am sorry, or uh, in verse 7 is read it in Hebrew. Uh, it rhymes more. You can uh, see it better when you read it in Hebrew. And uh, for those who want to look into the Hebrew and, and study it that way, you may get a, a better appreciation for the, for the way God recorded these words and the great meaning that words have and how God is oftentimes using this uh, linguistic uh, poetry and uh, play on words together. And uh, when you translate it, you lose the whole thing, unfortunately. And so God is saying here, uh, in verse 7 at the end, Nihanti kiasitim, that means I'm sorry that I made them, and think about the word Nihanti, and then the next verse it says, Noah, that is Noah, Matzachan ben Adonai, so you see the word Nihanti and Noah, who come from the same root, are linked together, which is very interesting. On one hand, God is sorry, and he uses the word Nihanti, and then on the other hand, you see Noah, which means uh, to comfort. Remember, when his uh, father uh, gave, uh, that is, when he begot him, his father, it, it, we read in, uh, in verse 29, when his father Lamech was 100 in verse 28, when he lived 182 years, he had a son, 
and he called his name, the son, Noah. Noah, that is, uh, uh, said from the same root as Nechamti, repented. And he called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us. So the word Noah, that comes from the same root of uh, Nechamti, in this case, it means to comfort. And from that word comes also uh, the term Menucha, uh, that is rest. And uh, one of the things that you do on the Sabbath is rest. So it's called also Shabbat Menucha. And the reason why God gave also this law uh, to men is, if you remember in the Ten Commandments, not only that men would rest, but also his slaves and also his animals. You see, it's a sort of uh, uh, interlinked creation between man and the creation and the beast of the field. And God wanted all of them to have uh, uh, a day where they can refresh themselves. Not necessarily do nothing, but refresh themselves. And so that's why the concept of rest also entered into the Sabbath. Because God wanted uh, the creatures to rest and he wanted his, his uh, sons and daughters to, to refresh themselves on this day and engage in, uh, in worshipping him instead of uh, making a living and working hard. And so... In, uh, when he had a son that is the father of Leah, uh, Noah, Lemech, he called him Noah because things were so bad at that time, uh, so difficult, so much grief, so much evil all around. Somehow he felt and probably had a prophetic uh, revelation there and maybe he had some kind of an understanding there. And so he called him Noah saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. So in specific, Noah was called Noah because of the land and the harshness uh, that was on the land and uh, the problems that it created uh, for people uh, which caused them to become uh, also uh, people of harshness, uh, people of harsh nature and har harsh character and harsh behavior. So everything was affected by it. And so it's very interesting that God on one hand says, I have repented and uses the word Nihamti. And then the next breath he's saying, but Noah, exactly from the same root, uh, was pleasing in his sight. I just uh, wanted to bring to your attention. And that's in essence the purpose of going through the scriptures uh, verse by verse, word for word, and uh, giving you background. Because remember, as Moses is describing that and recording that and God is giving him this information, He's not necessarily revealing everything to him, but by then, Noah, we're talking about uh, 2,500 years down the road, also already has an awful lot of background, so he can uh, understand many of those things, and those who read it can understand those things, because now they have a background 2,500 years. But when it is written at this point, uh, there isn't much that is happening. And especially when you go further into, into the record of man's history, you know, that is from the biblical point of view, and God recorded many more things later on. He can put all those things together. We have the benefit now of having the whole book, so to speak, and being able to put, able to put many things together and, and have a much greater understanding. And so, in verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah, in essence, comforted God. In that sense, you might, you might say, because finally God says, here's a man that's totally different than all the others. And just like his father said that this Noah is going to comfort us because of the land that cursed was cursed, and God was specifically going to curse the land in the terms of uh, the flood, 
So God himself, in essence, is being comforted by Noah. And yet the word, I'm sorry, and to comfort and to rest is all linked together, which is a very interesting way uh, to, uh, to uh, expound a concept in a multifaceted manner. As a matter of fact, in Hebrew you find words that are very interesting that you generally don't find in other languages. Uh, words that are opposites and have opposite meaning, like the word ara. Ara means to curse, and ara, and ara also means to bless. And yet both of them are, are found in the same word, in the very same word. And uh, it's a language that is very complex and extremely rich, and it encompasses an awful lot. So uh, you want to spend a little time when you read something in the Bible and other languages to go deeper into the root itself and what it means and all the, all the components that it uh, it includes in it, and that makes it a much, much richer uh, study of the Word of God and therefore of the mind of God. And how much can he say in only very few words? Uh, we take so many words to explain few things. And so in verse 9 we continue now with the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Perfect for that is tamim. Tamim means perfect. Tamim also means complete. Tamim also means in Hebrew, innocent, and uh, you use that also uh, as a naive, and naive sometimes can be bad in the sense that uh, if you don't know the world around you, you're going to be in trouble. But naive does not necessarily mean stupid. All it means is here you have a person that lived in a, in a, in a world that was nice and clean and trustful and, and faithful and good, and people didn't double-cross that uh, person, and therefore he's naive about about the evil process that is in the heart of men. You see? And when God looked at the earth in the days of Noah, he saw on one hand a person that was naive, so to speak. In other words, he was not exposed to evil. His mind was not filled with evil. When he saw people, he didn't think evil thoughts of them, like others did. And he was a perfect man. He was not corrupted in his manner, in his character, and in his upbringing also, and probably in his own body. It was not a, uh, polluted and perverted with, uh, let's say, eating the wrong stuff, eating all kind of wrong things. And as you read on, you will begin to see uh, that Noah had an awful lot of the knowledge of God in him. And that's why he was able to walk with God, and he knew many things that later on were being revealed, or let's say revealed all over again, and codified in the book of the law, uh, from uh, Exodus, from Mount Sinai, and then Leviticus, and Numbers, and all that, in terms of only not, not only uh, human beings and conduct and character and nature, but also in the treatment of the animals, and even in the eating habits, what they can eat, what they cannot eat. So in all these matters, Noah was perfect. He was not disobedient to the law of God. And this is what we read in verse 9. But, in verse 11, and then, you know, we read in verse 10 that he had three children, and uh, we explained that earlier, that the three children that he had, the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, were not born uh, all at the same time. Uh, they were born uh, probably a year after the other, and Shem was actually, though he he's mentioned the first, he was all actually born the last, which is the same thing with Abraham. When Abraham was born, he's mentioned as the first one. Well, actually, he was born... Uh, 130 years later. In this case, it's only three years later. And so Shem was actually was the third one, and he was born three years later. In other words, when Noah was 500 years, 
as we read earlier, in verse 32 of chapter 5, he begot uh, these three sons, but after the shame came later, three years later. And verse 11, and the earth was, that is, and the earth also was corrupt before God, I mean, it's total uh, corruption, and the earth was filled with violence. And that's, in essence, what happens when the wrong spirits enter into the heart of man. Uh, he become a violent uh, prone, and he, he likes to deal with his neighbor, not in a kind way, not in a rational way, not in a loving way, but with violence. And that, that's his only uh, language. So that became the language of the land. Instead of talking, they were killing each other, or hating each other, or, or bruising each other, whatever. Uh, we live in a world like that today, and it's getting worse and worse all the time. And so, in verse 12, So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. And for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So he makes it very, very plain that he did not bring a universal flood because an awful lot of people were innocent and only there were a few bad guys. But he said that it reached a point where every single human being upon this earth was being affected by that corrupt spirit, by that spirit of violence, but that destructive spirit and the demons, you might say, were just all over the place. And so, God, in that sense, had no choice, and also in his mercy, not wanting to see people uh, being afflicted anymore. After all, there are innocent babies who are going to be raised into that world, and some people say, well, who wants to raise children in, in that, in that uh, kind of a life, that kind of a world? So, in essence, he was, in his grace and mercy, putting everybody to sleep. So, nobody suffers anymore until he's ready to deal with them in the resurrection. So it wasn't all bad news. Death is not necessarily all bad news. Death sometimes can be your friend. When things are so bad, it's better just to go to sleep, so to speak. And that's all death is, as far as God is concerned. It's just like going to sleep. We go to sleep eight hours, six hours, seven hours, whatever it may be, and God is going to put us to sleep. And for us, since we are not aware of passage of time, it's sort of only a split of a second, so it's not that bad when you think about it from God's point of view. From our point of view, well, that sounds different. And so in verse 13 we read, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And he's speaking about everything that exists on, upon the face of the earth. And mainly in, in, uh, speaking in terms of the living things that are doing harm to each other. Uh, in terms of uh, man and beast and, and birds and, and so forth. And uh, the fish uh, apparently were not as affected because they're not affected by, uh, by water anyway, by flood. You know, they live in the water. So for them it was a different story. They're not affected by the violence to the degree that, that those who live on the earth were affected by it where they devour each other and eat each other. But who knows? Uh, uh, demons entered also into, uh, into, uh, into big fish anyway, if not little ones. And even among them, we see an awful lot of devouring, like sharks and other creatures. So God was just sort of fed up with everything, because everything was corrupted. And he was punishing men. And he was punishing the beasts of the field. And so he tells, uh, and of course at this state of mind uh, there is nothing you can do with man, there is nothing you can do with the beast of the field. And so that was the best solution from God's point of view, and after all he's the boss, he, he decides what is best, and he's the God of love and he's not a God of hatred. 
And whatever he does, it's for a good purpose. And so he's going to work out everything for good, ultimately speaking, because every human being who ever lived prior to the flood is going to be resurrected, and this time in a world that is full of sanity and full of of truth and full of patience and kindness and mercy and, and, and beauty and glory and majesty and all that. No violence. In other words, parents are not going to abuse their children and children are going to abuse, you know, the next door little uh, neighbor and so forth and nobody's going to abuse anybody. So it was the best thing for them to put all of them to sleep. Just like sometimes we tell children, go to your bedroom and uh, uh, the intent is just peace. Yeah. Stop being violent. In this case, that's in essence what he's telling them. Just go to your bedroom and go, go take a nap. And uh, wake up later, you know, when you're a little bit more sane. And so, we have to see it from God's point of view, because he's the one that says, I can kill an owl so I can make alive. And the difference is, is that when man kills someone, he cannot bring him back to life. So we shouldn't see things the same way. God does things in a different way, because he's in a different category than us. We cannot bring somebody to life after we've killed him. God can, and therefore, for him, he's just going to sleep. And the attitude of man was totally evil. All their thoughts were totally evil. And unfortunately, this is the, the way the nature of man is. And uh, later on, God is going to uh, even mention that to Noah. That it wouldn't make sense, in one way you might say, to constantly kill them when they get bad. Because otherwise, uh, what do you accomplish by that? So God, in essence, is saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to uh, live with that reality that I created, and that's a part of the plan anyway, that man is going to have those bad influences in him, and as I work with him, he's going to be able to overcome them, because otherwise if there's no evil around, how are you going to develop character? And if you don't have weights to lift, how are you going to develop muscles? So evil became, in essence, uh, the, the other side that you can put to good use or to bad use. And those who do it God's way, they are putting the evil to good use instead of to bad use. In other words, if you have temper, with the knowledge of God, with the power of God, with the help of God, you're going to overcome your temper. And if you've got malice or anger or evil thoughts and all, whatever it may be, with the help of God, you're going to tame those things and turn it around and do it to your own advantage. But the reality is that man has such a heart and continues to have such a heart that later on God is describing through the prophet Jeremiah. In chapter 17 and verse 9, uh, now God says, well, the, 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 the thoughts of man, he kind of, the thoughts that man is creating within his heart are all evil. And he can see that. And so he tells Jeremiah to record this statement in Jeremiah 17 verse 9, that the heart, that is the mind that we have, the way we function and think, that is, if we have not been properly raised and educated and tamed that nature in us, but even, even, even if we were, we were, that capacity is still there. So this is the nature of man that God says. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately, and the word in English is wicked, which is not a correct one. The word in Hebrew is anush. And anush is a word that is used basically for mortal sickness. You see? And so it's desperately, mortally, you might say sick. And therefore, God says, man needs a healer. A physician to heal him. In other words, the heart needs to be to be healed, and God is the one that can do it, and therefore He's going to do it, and that's why He calls Himself also the physician. 
And so at this point, God says, well, I'm not going to deal with them anymore. They got to a point where they're so corrupt that if I let them go beyond that point, they will probably become like demons, and then they will really be totally useless to me. And I will have to totally destroy them. So before they reach that point, God in his mercy says, knock it off, no more. If that's the only way you want it, we're going to put you to sleep, then we'll bring you back later on. And so that's what he tells Noah. I'm going to destroy them, but as for yourself, in verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. In other words, he's going to now give him instructions to, within that trial that he's going to bring, that destruction of all of humanity, you, Noah, being a just man, a perfect man, you are going to have deliverance. And that is also a comforting message to all those who are willing to obey God. That in the midst of destruction and violence and evil and all kinds of things like that, God is going to provide a place of safety for those who serve Him and worship Him. And that does not mean that God is going to deliver every human being who is a righteous man, because God, for good purposes known unto Him, and unto Him only oftentimes and not to us, he allows now and then even the righteous to suffer, but for a good purpose, not because he doesn't care about him. And so we have to look at it from God's point of view. Uh, most of the, of the servants of God suffered, and God did not deliver them from their sufferings, but he delivered them from the ultimate, and that is the ultimate destruction that is to come. And so even if they died in the flesh, yes, they suffered and died, Yet it was for a good purpose, and God developed a character through that, and through the trials that come on us, we are being purified and refined, just like a refined gold. And you might say the gold goes through a, through a great suffering to become pure. And so this is what happens to us, also to our character. And as for the flesh, that dies anyway, and God is going to resurrect the righteous and is going to give them a spirit body so they're not going to be destroyed any, anymore. But now, because of the trials and sufferings of this life, as Paul Leton will tell us, it is through much tribulation, much suffering, that we must enter into the kingdom. It's not going to be an easy one. Just like gold has to be refined, we too are going to have to be refined in the furnace of life. And... As for, as for Noah, God is going to, at this point, provide him a physical shelter, a protection, a place of safety. And that's what he's going to tell him. Uh, so he tells him to build that. So in verse uh, 14 to 16, he gives him some instructions. Letter only continues. And then in verse 17, we read, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, in which is the breath of life. And that includes man and the beast of the field and everything that exists on, on, uh, on air and, and oxygen and, and so forth. And everything that is on the earth shall die. Everything. Uh, God is going to bring total destruction and all. And we cannot look on it from a human point of view because then we, we, we set ourselves above God and we become his judges. But if we don't understand it fully now, as time goes by, we're going to understand it. So it's better not to open our mouth when we should not and uh, utter a rash judgment, especially not on God. In verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives, with you. And just because God was going to destroy all of humanity does not mean that 
that's the end. The very few he was going to preserve through them, he is going to again start the whole process all over again. And as for those who ever died before that, they too are going to be resurrected. They're just not going to continue uh, reproducing themselves and reproducing evil upon the land. So one whole generation had to be dealt with. And the few that were left behind that, they continued, but they were obedient to God. Of course, as time goes on, we find out that the story was not that good anyway. Uh, the children of Noah, as time went by, they too went back to the old ways, unfortunately. But now God decided no more. He's going to deal with this uh, situation in this manner. And so he says in verse 19, and I, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. And tells us an awful lot about the way uh, things come into being. In other words, two men don't bring uh, another man into, world, into the world. And two women don't do it either. It has to be a male and a female. And one of the major problems, that, uh, unfortunately, that uh, has been from the beginning of time is when two men think they should be living together and two women living together. And God says, no, that's not the way it is. I created man and woman, and I created the, the animal world the same thing. And each shall reproduce after their kind. And it's very obvious two men cannot reproduce and two women cannot reproduce. You know, that today, today was scientific help. Uh, they can do, they can bypass that law, so to speak. But up to now, man could not do it. Anyway, it's unnatural. And so he's saying two of every sort. But then later on, he makes it very plain that the two that he's talking about are the unclean food. In other words, as people call it, kosher. Those, those who are not fit for eating from God's point of view. There should be only two of them, two of each. And verse 20 of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind. You constantly see this after their kind. So there is no mixture there. And of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall, it shall be for food for you and for them. In other words, you have to care for the, for the creatures also that you take with you. You see the constantly the, the love of God there, the mercy of God. He thinks about every detail, and he cares about all. And then we read verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. And that was the problem with all the rest of humanity. They were not willing to obey God and to do all that God commanded them. And that was the difference between them and between Noah. And while the rest of humanity grieved God and made him sorry that he created them, and he says, Nihamti means I'm sorry, Noah, which comes, again, as I said, from the same root, did just the opposite. Noah comforted God. So God didn't have to repent about Noah or to feel sorry about creating Noah. And it's, it's interesting to have the two extremes there. And the difference was, one obeyed him, the others did not. And that's the whole story from the beginning until the end. God created us, gave us a law to live by. Those who obeyed have a good life, have peace on this earth, have tranquility and plenty and joy and all those good things. And those who don't create the chaos and the confusion 
and allow demons to enter into their minds and hearts and make things even much worse. And so the process repeats itself whenever people turn away from the, the way of God. And we go to chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You are the only one. And later on, you are going to read about Noah in several uh, passages uh, of the Bible. Uh, for example, in Ezekiel, God actually is mentioning Noah by name. And he's telling Ezekiel that in the day of Ezekiel, when Judah became so bad, so corrupt, so degenerated, that God was so fed up with Israel, which he already threw out of the land, threw, threw them out of the house, so to speak, and now Judah, he was going to throw them also out of the house, totally, because earlier there was an early captivity of the house of Judah, where Ezekiel was one of them, and he was taken to captivity into Babylon. But now God tells him that people are so bad today, that is the people of the nation of Judah, that even if Noah and Daniel and uh, I believe Moses, he mentioned three names, if they stood before me to, today to, to uh, intercede for them, I'm not going to help anybody here. Because they're so bad. These men who are righteous are going to deliver themselves. But as for the others, they're not going to be able to help them anyway. And uh, uh, as time went by, people, uh, you can find it in, uh, not only in the Catholic religion, you can find it also in the Jewish religion. People actually pray to, na- to people who are, in their mind, are dead, but now they are in heaven. And uh, because of the false doctrine that is both in, in uh, the world of Christianity and in Judaism, that people go to heaven when they die. When God made it very plain, it doesn't happen that way. And, and perhaps uh, we should uh, go through a little study, but uh, this, for the sake of those who do not know, because I'm sure that some of the listeners uh, uh, may not have the background that many of uh, those who do listen have, in terms of knowing the real truth about heaven and hell, and then they have a need for it. So I may take some time and explain the doctrine of heaven and hell in terms of what God said throughout the Bible from the beginning until the end. That is, from Genesis to Revelation in both books of what is called old and new. And so Noah was a righteous man. In verse 2, now he tells him something very interesting. In verse 2, he tells him something that people thought, well, that came only with uh, Moses and Sinai. And yet it was from the beginning of time. In other words, the men of old, from Adam and Eve, knew the laws of God. They were fully aware of them. They practiced them. And those who turned away from them became the wicked ones. And one of those laws that God gave from the beginning of time was, what is it that people can eat and what is it that people cannot eat? And the people of the days of Noah and those before them obviously totally neglected those things with bad consequences for their health. And also it affected their nature. And so God says in verse 2, You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal. Or later on, uh, as everybody knows it, in, uh, at least in, uh, in the world that speaks English, as kosher. In other words, everything that is clean, a clean animal, and uh, as time went by, you can go to uh, to uh, Leviticus, uh, I believe, chapter uh, 11 and Deuteronomy 14, where God talks in specific about the clean and unclean animals that Israel can eat, if they are to be a holy people. 
And the people of the generation of Noah were not holy people anymore, but Noah was a holy man. And one of the things that makes you holy is also the things that you eat or you don't eat. And that's the way God put it. I don't want you to eat those abominations that people eat all around you, but I want you to be holy, and therefore you eat only what I tell you to eat. And people forget that, and especially people in our own day, people that have known better, are going back to the eating of abominable things and forgetting that holiness also depends on what you eat, not only what you think. The two go together. And that's why God says that he who destroys the the body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, God will destroy him. And one of the ways you destroy your body is by injecting poison into it. And the animals that are not clean have poison in them that God did not want his children to eat. And I'm not going to go uh, in detail into that. Uh, at this point, maybe later on, as we get to the clean, unclean animals uh, in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And uh, the end time, if I can just throw a scripture here, in terms of the end time, when God comes down to judge the whole earth. And this is basically what he says to all those people that think they can eat all kind of uh, unclean things and get away with it. Uh, with foolish excuses that, well, in the old days they didn't have a fridge and things like that, so they, they, God told them don't, don't eat those kind of things. But he said it in two places in, at the end of the book of Isaiah. And these script, uh, scriptures are found in the book of Isaiah in chapter, chapter 65 and verses 3 to 8, and then chapter 66, verses 17, and then 24. But I can see that we are running out of time on these tapes. So I'm going to stop at this point. And say greetings to all of God's people. Until next time, this is Mordecai Joseph. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.